Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Anish Raghunandan, Professor of Accounting at the London School of Economics. His research focuses on corporate misconduct, issues in environmental, social governance, ESG, and auditing. In this episode, we talk in depth about the emergence of ESG in financial institutions and its outcomes. Professor Raghunandan explains how ESG funds often underperform standard funds in carbon emissions and profit, as well as maintain higher rates of corporate misconduct. We discuss the issues of verification, data manipulation, and transparency in ESG scores, and how students can think of ESG in more nuanced ways. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Anish Raghunandan. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, fun to talk about, re- talk about research. Yeah. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story and how you got to the London School of Economics. Yeah. So, I mean, I came kind of, you know, I grew up in the States. You can probably tell from my accent, um, studied in the US for my undergrad and my PhD, but I thought it'd be fun to uh, maybe come abroad for a bit. I never studied abroad in college. And so I figured uh, better late than never. And so when I looked for academic jobs after grad school, of course, I looked in the States, but I looked here too. And then uh, when, you know, when this offer came through, I figured it's a good school. It's a great city. I've never lived abroad. Um, Why not? And it's a good department. It's one where I can sort of uh, really have time to do the research I want, how I want it, when I want it, and you know, with the resources and most importantly, the time available to to work on it. Mm-hmm. And so I figured it was a, a great place to be. Yeah. And then before we get jump into what you actually do, could you give us a brief explanation of what is uh, ESG and then how did it come about? Sure. So if you ask uh, any two different people, they're going to have a different definition of ESG. Um, ESG, uh, you know, the acronym, of course, refers to companies, environmental, social, and uh, corporate governance related actions. Um, so, you know, and you could sort of imagine what those would be. The environmental stuff is pretty straightforward as to what it captures and what it doesn't. Um, the social stuff is where I think we run into a lot of issues where, um, you know, uh, you can sort of call any behavior a company engages in social, whether or not it's profit motivated or whether it's altruistic. Uh, and then the governance side is really uh, looking at the oversight of these two things and the company's financial performance. But of course, ESG just refers to, it's a way to almost characterize uh, the actions a company takes in a way that frames these actions around how they affect certain uh, stakeholders. And in particular, uh, the way the conversation has gone the last few years, non-financial stakeholders, right? So mm-hmm. those who are not investors in or lenders to uh, the company. Perfect. And can any fund be labeled an ESG fund? Um, yes, that's actually skipping a couple steps ahead. So basically, for context, um, I have some, I've done some work on ESG funds, which are basically investment products. So think like mutual funds, exchange-traded funds that essentially pool people's money and uh, claim that they're going to use that money to buy a stock portfolio of you know high ESG or maybe informally ethical or socially responsible companies. Uh, typically up until a couple of years ago, there was almost no oversight in, into whether the way funds marketed themselves, uh, actually matched the investment decisions that they made. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of my, uh, papers that we might talk about more in the next, uh, in the next few minutes or next, uh, or to the course of today, um, shows that these funds were taking people's money, charging higher fees on the grounds of promising to do the the research on behalf of their clients for who was socially responsible and who wasn't, uh, but then actually just turning around and buying stocks that had uh, a higher rate of labor violations, a higher rate of EPA and OSHA sanctions, right? Essentially ones who 
seem to be treating these stakeholders in the firm worse. Now, of course, in the past couple of years, uh, you know, for the U.S. audience, the the Securities and Exchange Commissioner, the SEC, has started to try to crack down on what you might informally call misleading marketing. Right. So in that sense, uh, to come back to your big picture question, can any invest mutual fund, for example, call itself ESG oriented? Uh, five years ago, I would have said probably yes. Now, um, it's too early to say for sure uh, how much of a crackdown there'll be and how stringently these new laws on the books will be enforced. But in theory, now the regulators can come after you for misleading marketing to say, so if you say, for example, uh, you know, let me invest your money for you and I will pick socially responsible companies, and you don't, for example, provide a definition of what socially responsible means, you don't, if you don't make it clear uh, to the ultimate uh, you know, people whose money it is, what, how you define socially responsible, what that means, and how you're going to um, make investment decisions in line with what you say you're going to do, then you can actually be sanctioned. So we're shifting towards a world in the US where the answer is no. Uh, and that's especially true, actually, in Europe, mm-hmm. right? So Europe actually has much more um, detailed re- and kind of advanced regulations on the subject where, um, without going in, into all the details, right, there's actually some regulation around what can and cannot be in the name of, inve- of an investment product. And okay. of course, you know, you, when you, you think about how people actually make decisions, right, we tend to first log on to our um, brokerage account or bank account and try to look for investment products that do what we want, right? If you want companies that are small and growing, you would look for like growth fund. If you want companies that are socially responsible, you might look for ESG fund or socially Mm -hmm. responsible fund, right? So of course, what's in a name is hugely important for what people see, what people find, and ultimately uh, what people invest in and buy. Mm -hmm. And so in Europe, we've got now much more, you know, kind of understanding that this is how people make decisions, right? How people like you and I, who may not work in the finance sector, but you know have a little bit of uh, just our savings that we want to invest. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, the EU actually has much stricter standards on what can and cannot be in a name. So the answer in Europe would be largely um, no, right? Uh, but the answer in the US is well, historically yes. Uh, now it's trending towards no, but it's you know it's too soon to say uh, what that'll be, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, um, there's a bigger picture thing here, which uh, we'll get into, you know, at some point maybe, which is the issue of greenwashing, which is how do you figure out a fund that, you know, markets itself as being ESG focused, uh, says the right things in its marketing materials, right? So it goes one step further beyond the name, but then quietly doesn't do what it says, right? And that's that can be harder to identify, right? Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask is whether or not. I'm an ESG fund. I say I define social governance as this. Who's to say like they are actually following that? Like how is there a certification body? Is there does the SEC define all right, these are the metrics we look at for social governance or environmental or whatever else it may be? Like how do they certify? Is, do we take the firm's word? Yeah, so so this is also where things get really tricky, right? So a good analogy here would be how would you hold firms accountable for financial claims, you know, in the past versus uh, this new world of um, ESG claims, right? Mm -hmm. And typically in the past, it was pretty easy to figure out if a firm was doing what it said it did, right? Because you had kind of one universal metric, which we could agree on, dollars to measure performance, right? And of course, you could argue um, whether or not we should be living in such a, uh, you know, singularly focused setting, but that that's the reality of how things work. Uh, and so you could easily regulate, okay, if this thing, you know, this affects profits, this affects revenues, um, you have to, you know, be open about how you generate it. 
in the in this new world where we're taking into account non-financial performance, it's a bit trickier because what's material to one firm may not be material to another, right? And what really can make uh, you know the affected stakeholders of a firm's actions uh, better off is going to differ across industries or you know maybe even within industries but as a function of how densely populated the local area is right there's a lot of things where uh what matters is very contextual right so mm -hmm. which leads itself to what i sometimes like to call a dimensionality problem right we have mm -hmm. all these metrics uh but it's not clear that the same metric matters the same uh across firms right so it's an issue of well if you if you require a certain quantity to be disclosed, right? If you say, okay, companies have to say how much they paid in uh, bonuses, for example, to employees, to managers, right? So we can get a sense of uh, you know pay gaps within a company. That might be really important in places like retail or places where there's a lot of employees who maybe don't have a lot of bargaining power. It's probably less imp important in financial services, right? So why you know it doesn't really matter if uh, Bank of America is disclosing that, given how given who works there and how they get paid and how much they get paid. Mm. Right, or you think about um, the, even things like carbon emissions disclosures. These are these are important, and this is something that the SEC is actually starting to ask for. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine it being hugely important for if you wanted to, for example, figure out whether an oil company that claimed to be shifting its business model to be decarbonizing what was actually uh, doing this. Mm -hmm. Right, it's less clear that we need to know uh, Facebook's carbon emissions. Right, in that they're a tech company, they don't really produce tangible goods, right? And so, sure, you know, maybe it's not bad to have the information, but it's maybe we want to know other things about Facebook, and we, it's more important that you know they put out these other things. Now, of course, uh, the trade-off here is that if you don't standardize anything, right? If companies have complete discretion over the metrics they pick, they're going to cherry pick the ones that make them look the best. Mm -hmm. Right, and so this is kind of the the struggle in figuring out how to regulate the space in the sense that um, different things matter, and different things are going to be more impactful on um, the communities and society uh, that firms do. Right, and so what do you you know what do you kind of mandate? And this is where you, you're starting to see um, guidelines, not regulations, but kind of mm -hmm. guidelines that are not necessarily enforceable yet. Um, on, okay, if you're in this industry, this is what's material. If you're in this industry, this is what's material. This mm -hmm. is something that um, there's a body called the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Mm -hmm. And they've spent a lot of time thinking about um, this exact thing, right? What matters for who? Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there's mixed evidence on whether, um, you know, companies that uh, disclose information in line with the uh, SASB, Sustainability Accounting mm -hmm. Standards Board, um, guide, you know, guidance actually uh, do better or whether doing well by doing good is really a thing. And mm -hmm. um, so there's, it, you know, it, you also have to be careful about how you think about the problem, right? Is, is it one where you care about the financial impact, right? Is it a risk? Is it a financial risk issue or is it a morality issue? Right? Mm -hmm. Neither is necessarily wrong, but it does frame what you should require. There's another, uh, sorry, there's another thing here as well, which is that we, we've, you know, we've started to attract, um, you know, a lot of financial professionals and a lot of investors to this space and a lot of times they we often think of, well, if investors are involved, we need the investor protection units, the SEC, for example, mm -hmm. in the US, to be the ones who are uh, regulating the stuff. But um, in a lot of cases, a lot of the data, a lot of the uh, meaningful metrics that we actually want, they already exist. They just are under the purview of a different regulator, right? So for example, let's say uh, you're, uh, you invest on, beha on behalf of a union pension fund, mm -hmm. right? 
if you're a union pension fund, you probably care a lot about investing in companies that treat their workers well. Yeah. Um, and so you probably care about, for example, workplace safety. You probably care about who pays a fair wage, right? Mm -hmm. But you can actually figure out a lot of these things and learn a lot about these things, not through something the SEC has mandated or will mandate or won't mandate, and not even necessarily through companies' um, voluntary ESG you know, uh, disclosures, right? Mm -hmm. These sustainability reports. But if you just look at, for example, OSHA case statistics, right? The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at how many workplace injuries does a company have? How many uh, workplace safety violations does a company have? How many, you know, how frequently do they get inspected? And of those inspections, how much, you know, how often do they get a clean bill of health, mm -hmm. right? Or if you look at the, uh, another branch of the, the Department of Labor, the Wage and Hour Division, you look at, okay, who seems to be getting in trouble for um, not paying overtime, for forcing employees to work through their breaks, right? Something that we call wage theft. Yeah. Um, and so you don't need any new regulation to to get this stuff because it's out there. But you have to think beyond the boundaries of, oh, um, the SEC should be the one providing it to me. Um, but yeah. there is sort of standardized, well-collected data by an agency that really knows the institutional details, mm -hmm. right? And so why aren't we relying on that stuff more than we already are? Um, that's kind of my an open question and one where, to be honest, I, I, I don't know what the answer because yeah. it surprises me. Yeah. yeah. So you feel like part of the responsibility falls on the consumer, the investor to do their own due, dil due, dil due diligence on the topic as opposed to relying on. I think that, well, I think that's part of it, but I think what would also be helpful is, um, you know, a broader shift in the conversation of, okay, if we care about these things, rather than immediately trying to say, someone give me a score or a rating, right? Mm -hmm. um, think about, okay, what are the most important measurable outcomes we can see, right? And so this would be, this, you know, this is gonna be different based on what you care about. If you care a lot about sustainable investing and if you care about greenness, right? We have some data on, you know, for example, I'm gonna use largely US examples, um, sure. just given kind of the audience and given some of my own work, right? But if, you know, of course we would like to know more about carbon emissions and it's a noble goal to get more, but there's already a lot of data out there on, for example, toxic releases and mm -hmm. oil spills and stuff that the EPA already puts out mm -hmm. that you could, if you were interested, link up to the ultimate uh, parent companies, right? And so you, know, you might say, well, okay, rather than just using some sort of third-party score, why aren't we looking at this data? Why aren't we calling out companies that have a lot of oil spills? Yeah. Why aren't we going on, you know, if you say you're an investor who cares about this stuff, why aren't you going on the earnings call and asking about a safety incident, right? We don't, we see this sometimes, but not as much as the amount of, for example, questioning and uh, talk you see about this in, uh, you know, in contexts where you know, there's money on the line doesn't match uh, essentially the amount of just straight up talk. So, you know, it gives you a sense that, um, yeah, if we just talked about this stuff more, but more importantly, in settings where you have management under pressure, Right? Maybe you actually start to focus the conversation on stuff that's already out there that already captures some of, not all of, of course, but some of um, what, we're, what we say we're trying to assess on mm -hmm. more rigorously. And then do you think the decentralized nature of the government is making it harder to properly assess uh, all the different companies and whether or not they're performing or holding themselves to the standards they say they are? Yeah, so I, I hesitate to say decentralization is uniformly bad, right? There's, mm -hmm. of course, um, there's a long academic literature on this in accounting, finance, economics on essentially costs and benefits of decentralization mm -hmm. right? and how much information is contained within a branch versus across branches and, and what have you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the one thing I will say is that decentralization may make it harder 
uh, to, to do two things, right? One is, of course, to coordinate across agencies. Mm. Uh, and this is something that I think, you know, based on some of my own work, matters because um, we do know that companies often respond to financial incentives uh, by taking essentially what you might call bad or, you know, a, you know, maybe not socially responsible non-financial activities, right? So there's work out there, you know, by myself, by others showing that companies under short-term earnings pressure often respond by skimping on workplace safety costs mm -hmm. or uh, employee wage costs, right? Uh, or, you know, there's, I have other work that looks at um, decentralization within a single entity, and in this case, OSHA, mm -hmm. and finds that, so for a bit of background, OSHA is organized um, into 50 state-level offices, and mm -hmm. the offices can talk to each other, but um, often don't. Yeah. And so what happens is each branch is, you know, has a lot of really good local knowledge and is, it, you know, it's hard to quantify, but that probably makes them better at their job locally, right? So California OSHA is probably benefits from having a lot of people who know California industry and California regulations mm -hmm. and California standards, right? And also knowing kind of just locally who are the most likely to be up to no good. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is if you have a firm, if you have a big company that operates in California and uh, Texas, yeah. right? If California OSHA doesn't tell Texas OSHA, hey, look out for this guy, um, the firm might essentially engage in something we call regulatory arbitrage to say, mm -hmm. get in trouble in California, then I'm going to clean up my act there, but I'll just do something bad in Texas instead. And that's, it's not, you know, it's not that you go into this saying, I'm going to do something bad. It's more just, well, if you have a fixed budget for safety, a fixed budget for um, some of these things, right? You just shift around the money, but don't actually invest into fixing the problem, right? And that's, yeah. that's again, I hesitate to say that this means that decentralization doesn't work, mm -hmm. but it's just a cost of decentralization, yeah. right? That That's worth thinking about. And of course, if you had more data, if you were OSHA, for example, you might think, well, okay, this is a cost. We have to account for this. Is it still worth bearing this cost because of the benefits of decentralization? Of course, that's you know well beyond the scope of what we might talk about today, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of what um, you know some of us in this space try to do is just try to understand Maybe not so much on net is something good or bad, but trying to better identify what are some costs we hadn't thought of? What are some yeah. benefits we didn't realize? Uh, and how are, for example, corporate financial incentives related to corporate non-financial behavior? And that, that actually brings me back to um, a question you sort of asked super mm. early on, which is how did you get into this stuff? Yeah. Uh, and I got into this whole um, ESG research space kind of by accident because I was I started from the point of being interested in uh, how do companies' financial incentives affect their non-financial behavior? Um, and then you start to think about, well, okay, so why are they doing this stuff? Um, is there is it purely financially motivated? Why do some companies, okay, all companies face earnings pressure from time to time, or mm -hmm. all companies face short-term investor pressure. So why do some companies react by, you know, to put it bluntly, screwing over their employees and yeah. others uh, resist the temptation? Yeah. And so that got me more into the space of, okay, so on average, the financial incentives seem to shift behavior, but that's an average effect. Mm -hmm. But within that average effect, not everyone is the same, right? And what what is it that could lead companies to behave differently? And of course, one thing leads to another. And you start to think about more of the social, the non-financial incentives, mm -hmm. right? And that's where we start talking about ESG and social responsibility, uh, at least traditionally, um, and how that might feed in to how, when, and why companies choose to um, treat their employees well or, or not. So I really came into this from a perspective of understanding employee treatment. And then, of course, you start to think about other dimensions as well. Yeah. And then when you talked about regulatory arbitrage, 
are companies or say a parent company able to outsource their carbon footprint or regulatory issues to subsidiaries or different states and like how does that process work yeah so that's something that works in i guess different ways depending on uh who the company is right mm -hmm. so when we talk about so this is where it might be helpful to bring in some jargon mm -hmm. uh so without getting into too much detail there's essentially three scope a carbon a company's carbon emissions footprint is divided into three scopes right uh, there's scope one, which is essentially direct emissions from production. So I run a factory, the factory spews some stuff into the sky, mm. right? The stuff streaming out of that factory is my scope one. Yeah. Uh, scope two is essentially emissions that were generated that were generated to provide me with like energy, steam, water, heating, and cooling, right? So I buy energy from the from the electric company, right? That energy, the electric company had to presumably had to burn some burn something or generate some emissions to create that energy, mm -hmm. right? And so the amount of the amount of emissions that were caused, quote unquote, by me needing to use that energy would be my, my scope two. Mm -hmm. And then there's something called scope three, which is a catch-all term for everything else. And this is super hard to define, but when you talk about outsourcing, uh, this is where you start, you might see a shift, right? So scope three reflects essentially emissions generated both up and down in the supply chain, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, um, you know, one, one part of scope three involves something called, uh, you know, downstream where I sell you a car, you drive the car, the car takes gas, right? And so how much you drive the car is going to affect my downstream emissions because I've, um, you know, I, I've, you know, essentially enabled you to pollute. Mm. And there's also upstream, which reflects, which refers to the uh, supply chain. Yeah. Right. And this is where we, when we talk about outsourcing, this is where it's, it's really going to be more relevant. Right. So we say, Okay, so now I have production, you know, obviously, unless I'm completely vertically integrated, right, I'm going to be buying some raw materials and be buying some partially finished goods, some inventory from suppliers. Mm -hmm. And those suppliers also generated emissions in producing the whatever it is I'm buying from them. Mm -hmm. And so the emissions generated up all the way up the supply chain up until I buy this, the unfinished products are going to be my scope three, mm -hmm. right? And so you can imagine if I shift uh, to outsourcing Right, I'm going to have lower scope one, higher scope three. Mm. This, of course, says nothing about some of the other issues we face, which is that sometimes carbon is treated differently. Right, so carbon is mainly regulated on the grounds of scope one and two. Mm. Right, so there's a bit of arbitrage here, and the and and you and this is somewhat understandable, right, in the sense that a company should be able to re, a company knows what's going on inside its own factory, right, and a company knows how much energy it uses, and so scope one and scope two are like pretty easy to if not get perfectly through carbon sensors, at least come up with a pretty good approximation of, mm -hmm. right? So we say that scope one and two are generally pretty uh, measurable. Scope three is m much harder to measure because in order for me to measure scope three, if you guys are my suppliers, I need to know both what's happening in my factory, but also what's happening in your factory, mm -hmm. right? And I don't have a legal right to force you to tell me that. And so scope three is often, you know, subject to a lot of estimation issues, right? And this, is com this isn't com anyone doing anything wrong. It's just companies trying their best with very limited information. Uh, and so scope three is often, for example, if you think about carbon taxes and carbon caps and what have you, right? Scope one and scope two are often subject to carbon regulations. Scope three almost never is. And even if you think about, for example, disclosure regulations, um, the UK has had a carbon disclosure mandate for large companies since 2013, mm -hmm. right? But again, that's only scope one and scope two. Yeah. The US, in the, in the US, the SEC is talking about it and it's, you know, maybe it'll pass, maybe it won't. But even in that case, 
Um, there will be legal penalties for if should it pass as it's currently been written. Uh, there's going to be legal penalties for um, misreporting or not reporting scope one and scope two, but not for scope three. They've created what's called a safe harbor provision on the grounds that com- it's really hard to estimate, right? So we shouldn't penalize companies for for trying. And so to come back, uh, this is kind of a meandering path, and I'm sorry, but to come back to your path of you know to your question of regulatory arbitrage, right? Well, if scope one is subject to scrutiny and regulation and scope three isn't, right? You can imagine outsourcing has the benefit of shifting scope one into scope three. So even if your total, you know, you sell the, to- uh, the same total amount of stuff, mm-hmm. right? You sell and, and you know, the same stuff is produced and the production process is the same. You've shifted stuff from scope one to scope three. And in fact, you might've increased emissions because included in scope three is the cost of transportation, mm-hmm. right? And if I have to move a bunch of stuff from a bunch of suppliers, right? that might generate more emissions than just doing stuff in house. Yeah. Um and so but if but if the scope 1 number goes down, right? I might actually look good. Mm-hmm. Uh the other thing of course is that and th- this of course also helps you for example if there's a scope 1 carbon tax, right? By outsourcing something and having someone else do it, right? You can avoid that tax, right? So there's a bit of a tax arbitrage angle as well. Yeah. Right? And there's also, you know, so pretty much any unless and until scope 3 gets regulated and this is something where, you know, in theory, it's great. In practice, it's one of these things where it would just be, uh, you know, I, it, we're we're not close to that. Yeah. Right. There will be these opportunities for um, what you might call a you know outsourcing carbon emissions in order to make your footprint or your compliance with the regulations uh, look better. Yeah. And would emissions from tech firms would that fall under scope three? Um, what you would probably see is a lot of scope two. Right. So you need, you know, tech firms are often, you know, running a lot of servers, right? They have a lot of cooling fans and stuff. So tech firms' main emissions footprint falls in the energy they, energy they consume, mm-hmm. right? Um, scope three for tech firms is generally pretty low because there's not, well, it depends. Okay. So this depends. If you're Apple, then of course you have your hardware and that mm. that's going to have a non trivial scope three component. Mm. If you are, you know, Google, well, okay. So if you're, Traditional Google, so you know, ignoring the Pixel and some yeah. of the other stuff it's gotten into. But if you're like the software side, right, you're not going to have much of a supply chain, right? Yeah. You just have engineers and code and um, you know, open source stuff on GitHub doesn't really have an emissions footprint, right? Um, you might, you could maybe argue that there's um, a downstream angle, but even that's harder, right? You'd have to prove that okay, you're using your phone and charging your phone forty minutes more per week because of my app, and that. So in some sense. Yeah. In theory, you could imagine it being there in practice. You won't see this reported because uh, how do you get that level of specificity, right? Yeah. Um, I, you know, if you're not using my app, right? If you use some other app, that's still, you know, that's still using electricity, right? You'd have to, I'd have to prove that um, your phone would be off if you weren't using my product, right? And that's uh, how am I going to do that? Yeah. Um, but so for tech companies, at least for software companies, we'll see a lot of scope too. Um, scope one, of course, you'll see a little bit, right? Just in the, um, you might, you know, if they're making some hardware, right? So most, not all, but a lot of software companies, big software companies, right? The ones you and I can easily buy shares in do have some, um, hardware production now, mm-hmm. right? It could be chips, could be phones, could be, uh, tablets, whatever. Um, and so you'll see a bit of scope one there, but scope two is probably the biggest one for a lot of, uh, tech companies. And this actually is very different from if you take manufacturing, right? Mm-hmm. Scope, scope one is way larger than scope two, yeah. right? So, and this is, again, when we come back to the issue of what matters for whom, mm-hmm. right? If you care about a tech company's uh, emissions footprint, right, you probably care about scope two more and you should be looking at how much energy they're using, right? 
if you look at, for example, a crypto mining shop, right? Scope two is where it's going to be. Yeah. Right. But if you look at a manufacturing firm, scope one, scope one is a lot more important. Yeah. Right. And then is there a scope one, two or three equivalent for a lot of the like social aspects? And what I'm thinking of right now is a lot of the like mining aspects that Apple likes, like in the Apple supply chain. Like that came up into light recently and like Yeah, so that's something where it's not it's not codified as neatly, mm. right? Um and so this is something where you know we if we talk about ESG, right, a lot of our discussion on emissions or that whole discussion has kind of been talking about the E part of mm-hmm. it. Um this when we start to talk about what you might call an ethical supply chain, which is I I think where you're going with this, yeah. um, that would fall more under the S. And of course you can think about people tend to assess um one of the problems with assessing S relative to E is that there's so many different things you can care about, right? It's, do you care about the company's direct workforce? Do you care about what's going on in the supply chain? Do you care about things like product safety and how consumers benefit? Do you care about, if you're Facebook, right? Do you care about the amount of disinformation zone, Yeah. right? So there's a lot of different things you can talk about. Um, but there's not really one, there's not really one, I guess, what you might call quantitative metric of how good you are to your supply chain. Of course, what we have in in lieu of this are more qualitative certifications, right? So think about fair trade, mm-hmm. right? Which, of course, it's a very specific setting, very specific set of goods, right? Coffee, chocolate, right? It's not expensive, but it is for companies in that sector, right? Certification that they have a, an ethical supply chain. Mm-hmm. And you see similar initiatives in other industries as well. I think fair trade is probably the most well-known. But I don't think there's not really one um, sort of uniform, yes, you are good in your supply chain, right? The closest we get to that is, you know, sometimes you get these ESG ratings that are put out by commercial vendors that try to assess a company's supply chain performance. But I'm often, uh, you know, deeply cynical of those in that they they don't really do their own primary research for the most part, mm-hmm. um, right? So, so I would say supply chain is important, but there's not really... So unlike the East, the environmental space, and unlike some aspects of the social space, so for example, it's pretty, maybe not easy, but there are ways to, for example, assess how a company treats its own employees, right? We have, in the US, we have workplace safety issues, we have uh, wage and hour issues. We're starting to see, you know, some some other quantities being disclosed. And of course, no, every metric has its flaws, right? So there's one that's called the... CEO pay ratio disclosure, which companies have to put, public companies have to put in their financial statements mm-hmm. that says essentially, what is the ratio of the CEO's total pay to the median employee's total pay? Yeah. And of course, there's only so much you can get from that, right? In that the median employee doesn't tell us a lot about the lowest paid and the most vulnerable, right? Or in the UK, for example, we have this uh, kind of flagship initiative called, uh, you know, that essentially requires companies to compute something called the gender pay gap and disclose it. Mm-hmm. Right. But there again, there's issues in that that metric doesn't account for, for example, differences differences in seniority or, right. So you can sort of tear into any one metric, but you do have at least in some aspects of, of um, S, right. There are quantitative metrics and you say, well, okay, no one metric is perfect, but maybe um, if I take these all together, I can get a sense of a company's um, labor footprint. Yeah. That is harder. You can't really quantify that in the supply chain, right. And that's kind of the hardest thing with, with understanding, yeah, does Apple you know, Apple needs a lot of minerals, right? What are the knock-on effects of this? And more importantly, how do we quantify the knock-on effects of this, yeah. right? Um, and that, that, you know, it's one of the hard, and this is where, you know, big picture, one of the hardest things about really holding companies to task is, you know, you can't do that if you can't measure what they're up to, Yeah. right? 
anecdotes are not anecdotes are great, but anecdotes are not a substitute for sort of systematic data. Yeah. yeah. And could you talk a little bit more about that aspect of the data and how it is hard to see what really is going on and who has access to the data that these companies are producing? Yeah, so that's there's a couple of different issues here, right? One is of course there's been a big push for, you know, as we talked about earlier, um, given that different things matter to different companies, there's been a big push for companies to, for example, put out quantitative data in their sustainability reports or to put out quantitative data on their websites on issues that are material to them, but also leaving it up to the companies to decide on what's material, right? And so that data, there, there's two issues. First is it's difficult to audit, right? Because mm -hmm. if you're an auditor, if every company is doing something a little differently, right? How do you, you know, how do you really know you don't, you don't develop the expertise you need to say, hey, this, this looks fishy, right? And the other thing is it's very difficult to, even if the data is public, to compare, right? To say, okay, you both say that you have, um, you know, you, you, have, you both say that you're a good high paying employee. Oh, but you excluded this many employees. Oh, but you have more contract workers, right? And you won't tell me what's going on there. How do I know which one of you is better, right? I, mm -hmm. I, I just, it's hard yeah. to figure out. Um, and so, um, you know, with, without really standardized data, right? you start to get into these issues of um, there's a bunch of, there's a lot of self-selection issues and how, what companies choose to reveal and importantly, how they choose to calculate it, right? So the same statistic in two, um, on two companies' websites may not mean the same thing. And so one yeah. way to get around this and it's something that we're seeing increasingly in, you know, in Europe and you know, it's to a lesser extent in the US has been to force companies to report a standardized uh, disclosure. Mm -hmm. And that I think is something that can be more promising, right? Subject to the caveats that, well, this, you know, it, again, this, there, any give any metric will have its limitations and um, the same thing may not be as important for one firm versus another. But one issue that we've faced there, and I can sort of, I've seen this firsthand in the context of studying the aforementioned mm -hmm. gender pay gap reporting in, in the UK is that, well, you need enforcement. Right, so I have work showing that. So in the UK, for context, companies with more than 250 employees, right, and this is um, for-profit companies, charities, universities, government bodies, you name it, right. So any entity with more than 250 employees, and there's like 10,000 of them in the UK alone, and probably way more in the states, yeah, um, have to reveal, have to produce and, and disclose publicly some statistics about essentially how much more does the median male, or how much more or less, I should say does the median male employee in the company get paid relative to the median female? And of course, there's some other stats on bonuses and um, high paid employees and low paid employees you have to disclose. But the gist of it is trying to compare um, how how much does the average male get versus the average female, right? And then trying to uh, put this out there in a standardized form for everyone and then trying to understand, well, what drives this? Yeah. The problem is um, there's almost no evidence that the regulatory body in charge of overseeing this data has bothered to uh, fact check anything, right? So one in eight of the disclosures online is mathematically impossible. And I won't get into all the details of that, right? But basically the fact that companies disclose multiple different figures means that you can reconcile them against yeah. each other, right? I'll give you a super simple analog from the uh, accounting setting, which is let's say you had a company that said earnings are positive, but revenues are less than costs, right? <laughs> I couldn't tell you which one of those is wrong, Yeah. right? It could be any of the three, but something is obviously wrong. Yeah. Um, and we have something similar going on in the setting where I, I, I have no private access to their data, but I can just look at this and say, hey, look, I, I can't tell you which one is wrong, but one of these three, one of these numbers is wrong. Yeah. And this is just sitting there on the website. 
Um, and, and, you know, it's so part of what makes me a little cynical about this is that I even, you know, I had a chance to um, give serve as an expert witness in parliament and I brought this up and nine months later, nothing has happened. Yeah. So, you know, even given the audience to, um, you know, that would be in a position to do something about this, right? You see, and to be fair, there, there are likely a lot of resource constraints and enforcement takes time. And it's, yeah. you know, the UK legal system is a bit different from the US, right? The US tends to be much more fine happy, right? Than the UK, which is a much more uh, slap on the wrist culture in terms of enforcement, right? So maybe the slaps on the wrist have happened. We haven't seen them and nothing changed. I, I wouldn't, that, I, yeah. I can't see that level of detail, right? So it's, there's, it's possible I'm being slightly unfair to to the regulator here. Mm. But at the same time, the bottom line is that if one in eight of these uh, numbers is obviously wrong, right, what has requiring um, standardized disclosure, you know, and this, this stuff costs companies in terms of time and effort to produce, right? What have we actually done if the data can't be trusted, right? And so the next step to me is really um, saying, okay, so we want to move to a world of at least having at least some agreeing on maybe a handful of figures that are important enough for if not everyone, at least a large enough set of firms that maybe we should agree that at least you know firms should um, disclose at least maybe big firms, firms for whom it's not prohibitively costly to do so. Right? Sure. So I'm not saying that the little uh, you know takeaway restaurant down the street needs to put out a gender pay gap report, but probably a company that's publicly traded on a stock exchange should can afford to do that. Yeah. Right. Um, but. The next step is saying, okay, well, if we if we say this is the solution to cherry picking and to companies um, systematically uh, trying to make themselves look good, then we have to actually make it the solution. The way to do that is to well have you know to, to enforce misreporting, right? Because if you're not enforcing misreporting, right, you're basically back to a world of companies releasing whatever they think makes them look best, mm -hmm. as opposed to a world where companies release truthfully and we decide for ourselves. Yeah, right. So it makes it hard on the consumers of this data, whether it's employees who want to figure out maybe who, you know, who care about the fairness of their uh, potential employers, or it's investors who maybe uh, actually want to put their money where their mouth is in terms of whatever social responsibility statements they make, right? Whoever the audience is, right? We, it's, you know, and however they make decisions, whether or not they use this information, of course they don't need to, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, and as, as, you know, somebody who wants to use this data, right, should be able to trust that it it's reliable, yeah. right? And that's sort of the, the step that's still missing, even in even in settings where we've been able to pass legislation to force disclosure, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is something that I think would also be interesting, and in, you know, something that's a good lesson for the U.S. setting as well, right? In the U.S., you don't really have too many of these types of disclosures. You've got a few, right? But of course, even then, you have something called the EEO one, the um, it goes to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, mm -hmm. right? But that data actually, um, companies reveal, to, you know, have to send it to the EEOC, but they don't have to post it publicly, right? Interesting. And, but again, we don't know if that data is audited. And of course, there's not a great way to, I don't know if you could reverse engineer it in the same way when companies misreport, mm -hmm. right? But if the if the EEOC wants to take the next step and it's eventually require that to be public, right, to say, hey, look, you want to go. You want to go find out which firms are committed to diversity, which firms are committed to pay equity, which firms just pay better. Full stop. Yeah. Right. Um, you want to be able to trust that data to know to you know to be able to say, hey, look, uh, to 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 use it. And that's where if this if this actually comes into play, right? If if we see a larger role for these forms and disclosures companies have to file, right? We also need to make sure that they're trustworthy, and that's kind of the yeah. next step 
in getting ESG data to to a better place. Yeah. Right. And then does your cynicism towards authenticating the published data extend to the third party uh, ESG like regulators or some of those boards and like can you maybe like expand a bit on oh absolutely who those people are and like what is influencing how they go sure. about collecting that data sure yeah so so one thing that I think is interesting and you know probably consistent right is that there's there's a huge demand for ESG data right and it could be big picture or just aggregate ratings of social performance or it could be like specific measures like carbon emissions right mm-hmm. so I you know I'm a green conscious investor I want to know your carbon footprint and you won't tell me. What do I do, right? And the answer that such investors and you know other uh, practitioners have turned to is to say, okay, well, I w- I care about this, or at least I want to say that I care about it, mm-hmm. right? But you won't give me data, right? I have no legal way to compel you to give me data, so so I'm stuck. What do we do? My, essentially, the demand exceeds the, the demand for information greatly exceeds the the supply of information. This is especially true in the U.S. Right, where we don't have a lot of uh, disclosure mandates to force the revelation of the information, and so what we what we see is um, a bunch of information intermediaries, so these for-profit companies, popping up to uh, try to bridge the gap between demand and supply. Now, what I don't necessarily want to do is, um, you know, call into account the motives of these companies, right? Especially. Um, especially the, you know, some of these companies that mainly try to estimate emissions, you know, I, I think they believe they're doing the right thing. And I think on average, probably we're, we're better off when people are trying to, um, produce new information. But with that said, um, we often, we see that, and I'll, I'll cite one example in the context of carbon emissions here, right? When estimated data, when essentially data that is estimated by these intermediaries, because companies aren't disclosing, right? When this data doesn't perfectly kind of map onto, or sorry, what? How do I say this? When when the patterns in this data don't necessarily match the aggregate patterns in um, sort of the actual data for companies that do mm-hmm. disclose and that do reveal information, we start to get into some issues. We start to induce measurement error, right? And in the context, I'll give you an example that I think is particularly problematic in the context of carbon emissions, right? So I talked about how there's a lot more demand for corporate emissions data than there is um, supply of emissions information, right? So you have vendors, and I won't name any specifically here, that try to estimate uh, this carbon emissions footprint for each each company that won't reveal its own. Mm -hmm. Now, in theory, this is good, right? But in practice, what happens if a company is not revealing its information? Well... Uh, it's harder to say, okay, well, based on your business model, right? I think you, you know, you two are in the same industry, but I think you're more efficient than he is. Mm-hmm. Right? If neither of you is going to tell me that much about, you know, your production process, how can I say that? And so what we see is a lot of reliance on industry averages, right? So what we see is that um, estimated figures tend to bunch much more around industry averages. Whereas if you look at act- figures that firms actually disclose, right, they're more all over the place. Mm-hmm. Right? You can really identify... Um, who are the best and worst within an industry, right? Um, in terms of who's more efficient. So you and I are both um, auto manufacturers, but I've find I figured out how to use much less energy, right? Or I figured out how to make my production process greener, mm-hmm. right? If we both disclose our emissions figures, that will be clear. My my car, my uh, my efficiency will be clear, right? If we don't disclose. Right then, all that the data vendor knows is that we make cars. You know, they may, they might know something about the size of cars, and the make and model, and mm. what have you. 
but they're probably going to estimate pretty similar emissions figures for us, mm. right? And more importantly, they're going to estimate those emissions figures as a function of you know, essentially financial performance. How many cars do I make? How much do I sell? Right? What's my, um, you know, what's, how much inventory do I take in? Right? And so what you see is when, when an estimate of a non-financial metric tends to rely on financial metrics, right? Then what you have is a close correlation between the underlying financial metrics and this estimated non-financial metric. And this is an issue because let's say you that you ask, do investors care about um, carbon emissions, right? We know for sure that investors care about a company's financial performance, right? And so if we use the real emissions data, which is you know based on companies actually measuring their output, right? You actually find that there's no correlation between, for example, stock returns and a uh, company's carbon footprint. If you use the estimated data, right, which is largely a function of financial metrics, right? So the estimate is basically just a transformed, uh, you know, transformed financial figure, right? You do see a correlation, right? And this is problematic because if you want to say, well, do investors care, right? Is the market already doing something about climate change? Well, you're going to draw different conclusions if you use actual data versus if you use estimated data. And this is given by, and this is driven a lot, not by any you know, nefarious incentives, but just by the limitations that vendors have in trying to figure out um, what a company's carbon footprint is, right? And so you have, you, know, you have a lot of these issues where it may matter more in some settings than others, right? But especially in the case of, um, you know, of carbon emissions, right? It's really important in the sense that, you know, especially in the US, we tend to say, well, here's a problem. Does the mark can the market fix it? Great. If so, leave it alone. Mm -hmm. If and only if the market cannot fix it, if we say it's a market inefficiency, then maybe we should regulate it. And of course, you can argue whether that's the right way to view the world, but the reality of the US is that's roughly how regulation in the US works. It's like first let the private sector fix it. If they can't, then we'll talk about regulating it. Right. And so if we think the market is already um, punishing high car high emissions firms, why why do we need to put in regulation? Yeah. Right. But it, if it turns out that we think the market's doing something and it isn't, that's where we start to get these actual potential negative uh, regulatory implications. Because we might say, well, if the market is doing something about climate change, great, let it be, right? But suppose that we think the market's doing something and it's not. Then we're accidentally allowing a lot more pollution because we're not trying to regulate the problem, mm -hmm. right? So it's a case of we need to know the right answer to figure out what we should actually do. If there's a problem, you say, okay, how are, what are companies doing? Um, is there a private sector solution, right? Is it working? If it's not working, is there is there a way we can regulate it, right? But to get to even that second question, you need to know the answer to the first one, yeah, right? And do you see this? Um, this is probably a pretty extreme, ex you know, example with a specific metric. But there's, a, I have a broader kind of cynicism about a lot of these um, vendor estimated uh, ratings and data points as well. So one thing that if you look up, if you try to figure out any company's um, sustainability footprint or how socially responsible they are, one of the first things that you're going to find is something called an ESG score or a CSM mm -hmm. score. And what this basically is is saying, let's try to just co collect a bunch of data points about the company. Do you have a policy for, you know, for anti-harassment? Do you have an anti-discrimination policy? Do you uh, have, what's your workplace safety record? Um, what's your carbon emissions? Do you have um, some sort of policy about how you deal with hazmats, right? All sorts of stuff spanning all sorts of, uh, you know, environmental and social uh, attributes, right? And then what you have these, what these vendors do is they essentially take all these data points or as many as they can find, um, assign some sort of weighting to how important each one is and come up with sort of a weighted average score, 
Yeah. Right. The, there's a couple of issues here. First is a lot of times the weights are a black box, right? And this is a problem because let's say, again, let's go back to the issue of your union pension fund, right? Your mandate is probably to care a lot about employee treatment, so to care about wages, safety, harassment, discrimination, like anything that does with employee sure. welfare, right? But your mandate probably, and of course, maybe you want to invest in a green may, but your mandate is not doesn't really cover that, right? So you need to prioritize labor issues first and foremost, mm -hmm. right? And it can be hard to use these scores to tease out the parts that you want, mm -hmm. right? Because you're, get, you're getting these aggregate scores and you don't really know how important these issues that you care about were to the person coming up with the score, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one issue with these things. The other is, and this comes back to the issue of verification, mm -hmm. is that there's almost an arms race to collect more and more data points, mm -hmm. right? But a lot of times what you get is, um, you know, feeding into these ratings is stuff like, do you have an anti-discrimination policy, right? But no, uh, there's no verification of, well, do you actually follow it, right? So I can, have, I can have a great policy about anything. If I don't enforce it, that's not really doing anything, right? Yeah. And so you care, this is where, you know, to come back to the point of relying on hard data, right? Instead of looking at, you know, do you have an anti-discrimination policy? You might look at, well, have you been punished by the EEOC for uh, discriminating against employees, right? And of course, that's going to understate. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't get reported to regulators, right? So you have your own measurement problems there, but at least you know for sure that companies sanctioned by the EEOC did something bad to their to their employees, yeah. right? Yeah. And so in, in some sense, it's a case of, well, where do we get more measurement error and where is it more problematic? And how which ones are easier for companies to, to game in the following sense, right? Um, I'm a company, I'm treating my employees pretty badly, right? I can easily just write a policy that says I'm going to stop treating them badly, uh, but, but still treat them badly, yeah, right? Yeah. Writing that policy costs like a couple hours in lawyer fees, right? And that's it. But I don't actually have to do anything. But if I'm a company that has a lot of workplace safety issues, I'm going to show up on, uh, you know, the OSHA databases for uh, violations. Yeah. And unless I might write a policy that says I'm going to, I'm going to start being safe, Right. But if I don't follow that policy, I'm still going to show up in the OSHA data. Mm -hmm. Right. Only if I actually follow that policy will I you know, stop showing up as a violator. Yeah. Right. And of course, there's going to be issues where not everyone gets inspected every year, not every inspection catches everything. And of course, you have, whenever, whenever you're relying on a government inspection data, right, this is going to be the downsider, which is that not everyone, not everything gets checked or caught. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, you at least have hard data on something that we know how to measure. And that companies can't really game, right? When the inspector shows up, I can't bribe them to not write me up. Yeah. Right? I, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, it's, so it's really an issue of hard data versus soft data and what we should be prioritizing, Certainly. Uh, in my view. Yeah. Yeah. It also seems like it might be smart to try to break it down into each of the E, S, and G instead of trying to just group it all together. I think so, right? And that's something where, again, um, we say is which companies are socially responsible. And that's much more so than, you know, financial performance where we have a single metric, right? Dollars or stock returns or whatever, yeah. right? Um, which companies are the best in this case is very much in the eye of the beholder, mm -hmm. right? You are a green investment fund, for example, then you probably care about carbon emissions and toxic releases. And while you don't want companies to harass their employees, right? You might weigh the labor issues a little bit lower. Mm -hmm. right? Or you're a union pension fund, right? The labor issues come front and center. And of course, while you might see, yeah, lower emissions are good, right? That's going to be a bit less uh, first order for you, given your mandate, right? Than uh, the labor, than labor issues, mm -hmm. right? And so in many, given the dimensionality problems in play here, right? Um, virtue is much more in the eye of the beholder for investors 
than it would be when we talk about financial performance. And this is where breaking things down a bit helps, right? So, you know, you, you're a fund, you're an investor, maybe just you, you as an individual investor, right? You're really passionate about a certain cause, right? It helps to understand which companies align with that cause. You care about one thing, you don't care about these other things quite as much, right? How do you, can, and it would be nice if you could find a company or set of companies or portfolio that you said, yeah, that aligns with my personal values, whatever they may be, right? Or I think both, you know, I think two things are great, but I think this is a deal breaker for me and this isn't, right? How do you find a company or a set of companies to invest in, right? Or to even, or to, even to work for, right? Yeah. We're not, you know, this goes beyond just investing. This goes into, well, do you want to work for a company that you think is doing bad for the world, mm -hmm. right? Um, some people say, yes, I need a paycheck. Some people say, no, I'm, I, you know, I'm gonna, gonna try to, I'm willing to make a personal financial sacrifice to, to not do that, Sure. right? Whatever your choice is, you, you should be able to make that choice, yeah. right? And this is where it helps to know, okay, what are they doing? Do I care? Do I care about this? If I care about this, are they good or bad in this aspect, right? And that's easier to do than to say, it's easier to say I care about the, you know, a specific thing than to say I care about social responsibility. And this is, and it, it also helps us maybe come up with uh, a personal rankings in, in the sense that most firms are not good at everything, right? You have firm, you have, you know, Tesla is a good example here, right? Tesla is like kind of, at least until recently, was leading the sort of green car revolution, at least in terms of you know, marketing and per and perception, really getting uh, electric cars to be perceived as something in the mainstream that people wanted, mm -hmm. right? So you'd say they're very green, but you know, you you read the reports from Tesla factories, and their labor performance, their their labor relations are suffice to say, not great. Yeah. Right. So do you invest in Tesla? Well, it depends on whether you think um, the latter is a deal breaker or whether you think what Tesla has done to bring uh, green cars into the forefront and make them mainstream, it justifies the investment. Right? And of course, this is setting aside the financial performance for and Elon Musk for a second. Sure. Right. But this is a case where if we look at Tesla's ESG rating, and of course, this actually, I think he there was a Musk tweet about this last year where um, Tesla is rated really highly by some agencies and really poorly by others, right? And what that comes down to is these agencies quietly deciding um, they care more about one aspect or the other, mm. right? And of course, if you know what these weights are and you know how different rating agencies weight different aspects, right? Then you know almost which rating you care about more and which one you trust. Sure. But that takes a lot of work, right? And agencies aren't necessarily forthcoming about this because they all want you to think they do the best job in capturing a company's overall footprint, Right. Mm -hmm. There's you're not gonna have a company saying, Yeah, we're pretty good at this and we're not so we don't care about that, so you should not use us for that, right? They want to sell you their ratings. Yeah. Right. And so it's a case where really focusing on the components and and even not just all of E or all of S, but trying to focus on, you know, labor relations or focus on product safety or who is, for example, you know, if you're you know, if Facebook and disinformation, right? That's a that's a consumer issue. It's mm -hmm. not neatly categorized, but it's something you should care about. Yeah. Right. And so trying to drill down and focus on the things that you care about, you think are important, right, requires some degree of disaggregation and also disaggregation of data in a way that is easily consumable mm. to those of us who don't make a living trying to understand these things. Definitely. Right. And then as we kind of wrap up here, what are your thoughts moving forward with the future of ESG and how do we get proper standardization, transparency, better data? Like, where do you want to see this area going? Yeah, so this is one where um, it's going to be complicated, at least in the US, by how politicized it's gotten, right? Sure. 
And so to me, a lot of the future of ESG is actually moving away from the term ESG mm -hmm. and really talking about, well, okay, we've, you know, we've started to talk about stakeholders and we've started to have a conversation on needing to treat stakeholders well. So a lot of it is saying, okay, who are the stakeholders that we have perhaps been ignoring or underweighting, right? And how do we, for example, make sure they get their due keep? How do we make sure that they get treated fairly? And a lot of this really comes down to, I mean, a lot of ESG and, and the, a lot of the financial discussion around ESG, right, really centers on this notion that companies should internalize their externalities, mm -hmm. right? Where we say, okay, well, companies, you know, for example, a lot of companies have high carbon emissions and they decide this is a good strategy because they're not being taxed on it to the extent that would force them to go green a lot faster, mm -hmm. right? Or, you know, you look at Walmart who has uh, employees on who basically work full time and then get food stamps, right? Yeah. And that comes from, again, you know, Walmart saying, well, yeah, I don't have to pay you as well because you can also just go apply for SNAP, right? And if, you know, if, if you said, if you essentially forced Walmart to pay a living wage or whatever it may be, right? I don't sure. want to get into debates on specific things, yeah, yeah. right? But if you, if you essentially said, okay, here is how much Walmart paying employees poorly costs the government, right? How do we recoup that? How do we force Walmart to pay for this externality, right? You might have a different conversation, but these conversations are going to be different for every, um, for every environmental or social issue that we think is worth fixing. And, and, you know, of course, not everyone may think the same issues are, first of all, problems or need to be fixed, right? And of course, this aligns a lot with worldviews, political views, mm -hmm. what have you, right? But it's easier to, I think, tackle specific issues, right? If you can first say, here's the issue, here's what it costs, right? Here is the externality is not getting internalized in this context. Mm -hmm. How do you internalize it? Yeah. Right? And that requires some degree of disaggregation, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's hard to really say, well, here's, you know, here's the total externality of your ESG performance. That's just, it's it's going to be an estimate. No one's going to believe it. And yeah. There's going to be fights, even Cer more than there currently are. Yeah, certainly. So that's kind of the my take on that. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time today. It's been yeah, wonderful. Thank you. thank you. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.